When Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, entire neighborhoods vanished under 20 feet of water. Friday marks eight years of civil war in Syria. Nobody wanted this 18-year-old kid to volunteer for their organizations. He's all over the internet looking for somebody. And finally at a rally in San Jose, he meets Dang. Dang had fled. Our guest for this episode is Jordan Hattar, who runs a non-profit called Help for Refugees. Jordan, as he shortly tells us himself, has been an activist from a very young age and was very impulsive in a lot of his decision-making, like leaving for a different country to work with refugees the day after he graduated from high school. He spends much of his time today touring schools around the world and essentially propagating what has been termed a refugee curriculum. This instills from a young age a greater degree of humanism with which people should view refugees who are forced to flee their hometowns. Joining your co-hosts Gaurav and Bell today, all the way from Egypt and in a completely different time zone right now. Jordan, over to you. You know, it, it all started working with refugees. I mean, I would go back to eighth grade when I was 13. I first saw the images of Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, 2000 miles away on the other side of the U.S. I grew up in California, but I'll never forget those images, you know, floating bodies in the water, people on the top of buildings with help signs. And I remember thinking, how could this happen in one of the wealthiest, most prosperous countries in the world? And that made me engaged in the world. I started looking to see what was wrong with the world. Ninth grade geography class was learning about genocide and different conflicts. And I learned about the genocide at the time in Western Sudan in Darfur. And I ended up becoming an activist in high school. Every morning I would bike to, every Thursday morning I would bike to school and we would call 1-800-GENOCIDE, which was a line um, to talk to like a, someone in the U.S. government. I think it was a congressional legislative assistant. And we would voice our opinion, um, you know, calling the U.S. government at, six, at 16, 17, 18 years old and not knowing if it made a difference, but trying. So I became an activist a little bit in high school, aside from playing basketball and soccer and tennis. You weren't the only high school student who saw the images of Hurricane Katrina, right? And you weren't the only person who's kind of delivered that news at that point in time. And I noticed when you said that you used to call up the 1-800-GENOCIDE helpline, you used the word we. So was it just you working individually or were there other high school students as well? And have they gone on to take similar parts in life? Or what was the what was the divergence there? Yeah, I got my friends involved. You know, I, I grew up in a small rural town of a few thousand people, a town called Templeton in Central California, Central Coast California. And... It was a new concept to do the IR type of stuff in the, in this town. But my friends would just join me on the bike ride and they would be interested. And I, I would show them different documentaries, just showing my best friends, you know, what I cared about. That was basically it. And then I went to South Sudan at 18, you know, two days after I graduated from high school um, with a Sudanese lost boy. Um, it took about six months to plan that that humanitarian journey. But I really wanted to do more than just post something. I wanted to meet the people. And I learned so much about what was happening in South Sudan at the time. And after my time, so we went to South Sudan to build a medical hospital in his parents' village. 
and um, after South Sudan studying IR um, at Cal State Long Beach in Southern California, and it was my Arabic teacher at university. She was the first Syrian I ever met, and that made me really want to see how I could help Syrian refugees. But the first refugee I really got to know was the guy I lived with in South Sudan, Deng Jankuch. And he's known in the world as one of the Sudanese lost boys. He walked over a thousand miles when he was five years old. <laughs> Just a remarkable story. And now he's spending his life giving back to his home community. You know, we have all these ideas on what a refugee is. Um, but um, the first idea that got planted in my head is that refugees help people. You know, I had this concrete example someone I lived with in South Sudan. I'm just trying to get at, again, this issue of like, what sparks certain people's interest and empathies while it doesn't affect the majority of people. Like, who, you've gone out yeah. of your way to dedicate your life to this, but then most people didn't. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. This is just, it's a different path in life, right? But what is it that makes people like you, makes change makers sort of come alive with these issues? You're really, when you're really moved by something, I think we probably, all of us at some time in our life are really moved by something. And then it's like, I felt like if I didn't do something, maybe I would live my whole life not taking action. And I didn't know, like I messed up a lot on like the ways I took action, but I just started to try. And it made me so frustrated that here I was living this life of, in a peaceful community with none of these types of problems that I was seeing around the world. And I felt like it was my, my responsibility, my obligation to try to act. And I think what happened is once I realized I could make a difference, it was contagious. Like once I saw, you know, in the refugee camp and Zatari camp along the Syria Jordan border, we delivered these caravans. And in one of the videos, you can hear one of the refugees that's receiving the caravans. We delivered these caravans, which are like box houses to help refugees that were living in tents get into better housing because they said that was one of their biggest needs. And I think whenever we're trying to help, it's important to listen, to find out what the biggest needs are. So, you know, it's not our own agenda, but I, I heard this guy say it's, you know, getting this caravan is like winning the lottery. And I'm starting to think, you know, the, the way that we can make huge impact in other people's lives, that's an exciting thing to be a part of. And that's what keeps me going. Um, you also mentioned that you went to, for example, like you did IR in university at California State and at Cambridge. So I'm wondering how this kind of, you know, this activist side in you that arose after seeing all of these images and everything. I'm wondering how that was perceived, obviously, in your local community, which you touched upon a little bit. Because as you said, it's a rural kind of community in the global north of North America. But more specifically, when you actually got into, let's say, a similar like policy space. So, for example, in like university in, or in Cambridge or even, for example, in the White House. How is this kind of activist on the ground approach perceived by other people? And did they kind of get motivated? Great question. Excellent question, Garuv. I, I think back, to, and I'll answer that first in a, in a different way. And first off, when I'm thinking about other people's opinions, I'm, you know, I'm really making sure first about why am I doing this? What's my intention? I think intention really matters when we're trying to make a difference and um, making sure that we are really thoughtful in how we act. You know, I was at International Day of the Girl with uh, Mrs. Obama when I was interning with her office and the last, you know, end of 2016, beginning 2017. I'll never forget at the International Day of the Girl, 
this one girl basically said, you know, and someone was asking her, it was a teenage girl from West Africa, I think, and something about like, you know, how do you keep going when you face these death threats or these different challenges? And she said, I don't listen to the seven people that say I can't do something. I listen to the one person that says I can. And I would add that sometimes it's just you. Um, and that's okay. And back in my rural hometown in California, I didn't have much support at the beginning, but at the end, I had quite a bit of support. They brought me back to speak in front of the whole school the following year with Deng Jongkuch after we were in South Sudan. I got like the hero's welcome back in my hometown. Whereas before everyone's like, oh, this is a crazy idea. But I mean, I was also, you know, there was, there was mixed support. You know, I was like voted most likely to save the world my senior year in high school, but I was also hearing some comments that would really discourage you. And uh, then when I got into Cambridge and, and, and Long Beach State, um, I, I was around people that really had similar viewpoints on that we need to take action. I would say IR is like the change the world major. Nice. <laughs> and it was exciting to be around. Yeah, of course, sometimes you're going to, you know, you're going to, your activism or your different ways to get engaged is going to be pushed down. Um, but I tried to merge like my, you know, my research, my academics with my life passion of being on the ground, working in crises. The background I kind of come from in like, for example, the global South countries like India mm. with oh. kind of like job or like life paths or jobs that are still considered respectable. We still stuck with mm. that ancient trident of like doctor, Do lawyer, engineer. That's kind of the benchmark for how successful someone's child is, right? Like when mm -hmm. this is just a hypothetical example, but like Indian parents are taught to weigh how their kids are more towards their ideal than, for example, like Dolly Auntie's kids next door. So that's still kind of the benchmark that we're at. And this like dedicating your life to like helping other people or like working with like refugees, for instance, at least from what I've heard, it isn't a well-paying job. It isn't something that like people who don't understand this sense of empathy or passion, who don't have this drive to change the world. It's not something that they would really kind of comprehend fully. How do we kind of make it easier in the future or in the present? How could we have made it easier in the past for kind of potential change makers to find themselves? And how do we change these sort of, because this is like a big thing, right? It can't just happen mm -hmm. in a second, but in society all over the world, because I experienced this, it sounds like you experienced something similar in rural America. How do we begin to change this kind of perception around helping other people as quote unquote a worthy way to spend your life? The first thing that comes to mind is just storytelling the stories have a way of just impact and physically being present. I could, I honestly feel like I could take, you know, you look at the political spectrum in the U S we've got quite polars, right? I could take any Senator to the refugee camp. And I'm pretty sure at the end of the day, or if I get a couple of days with him, I'm pretty sure he would be, we would be on the same page. And regardless of what he or she's going to have to answer to their constituents. But it's not like I also think about my own journey. It's not like I had some premeditated, like, I want to help refugees. It happened naturally. And it was like, it moves you. It's some of these stories. It'll will be with you for the rest of your life. And I, I, that's why I believe in the power of, of storytelling. You know, I think about city. I used to bring my, my parents, how I kind of got them on board. We would watch documentaries, you know, if, if I was in high school right now or in college, I'd probably, we'd sit down and watch The Swimmers, the new documentary that came out about the Mardini sisters. 
that they're, you know, professional swimmers and their boat as they left Syria was sinking in the Mediterranean and they jumped out and, you know, helped their boat get to safety. So I think raising awareness through, you know, documentaries or I remember with my parents and my family and friends, we had watched, I watched the, the reporter by Nicholas Kristoff. It's a, you know, New York Times reporter. Um, we watched all types of, you know, documentaries and stuff that really just inspired and showed my community why I was involved in this. But from an outside point of view, go Rube, I can totally see what you're, it's like, oh, like, what's the point of this career path? But I wouldn't choose any other path. I really have loved where I've gone since high school. I really like what you said about storytelling because I'm also a creative writing major. And like the intersection of IR and creative writing, like the reason for that is because I want to go into journalism. It's just like highlighting, specifically highlighting the voices of people who are experiencing like conflicts or issues in their home states and just like highlighting and bringing that to the forefront. I feel like that's how you resonate. Like that's how you move people. That's how you get them to become involved. And that's how you raise their empathy. It's like once you tell these stories of these real human people and what they've been through, then you can start actually going beyond the theory and start connecting with them as like a, as person to person, human to human, rather than just like, oh, I understand them from this academic lens because that's what I learned about in school. And I think Jordan, what you're talking about, like just highlights physicality of issues. And I think that's what we're missing in mm. IR studies now. Cause like IR is like very, it is very theory based and there are like case studies that you can do in class, but I feel like you really do need to go outside the lecture hall and the app, like go beyond the abstract research papers. Cause there's this whole, other dimension of it which is the physical space and like the landscape that you can go into so i feel like maybe having a balance between those two would probably honestly motivate and inspire people to go out more because i feel like what right now with our education it doesn't motivate people to like stand up and get moving you know it actually motivates them to sit down and write so I don't know. Yeah, that's just like my point of view. That just makes me excited hearing how you phrase that. It makes me think of two of my big role models in reporting, Christian Amanapur, the, you know, she's covered conflicts, most notably from the Balkans in the early 90s. And Nicholas Kristof, who exposed me to the situation in Darfur in Sudan. And they focused on what you mentioned, that physics, they focused on real people's stories. And there's this documentary called Ghosts of Rwanda by PBS Frontline. And in the film, it, it made me think of what you just said, because there was this French journalist and there was a group, there was this group about to be massacred um, in, in Kigali, capital of Rwanda, during the genocide. And she said that it was that moment when there was that woman speaking to her woman to woman that she really, this wasn't about anything else. This, and the journalist was supposed to leave, but at that moment it was, it was real for her. And I think nothing can substitute the impact of physically, you know, being present in the situation. What we seem to have boiled down to from this exchange is that the format of education specifically in IOR is kind of 
a root problem. It's like a structural problem because being in a classroom, as Bell said, creates this like lack of physicality, which creates this like distance in your own mind from what's actually going on. So could a potential solution to break down that lack of physicality actually be to change the place of the method of education? I know, for example, John, you with like your help for refugees organization have um you organize visits obviously to schools to speak about um like the refugee problem refugee camps and everything but also if i'm not wrong on the flip side and if you could talk about this a bit more as kind of an alternative to education the way we see it right now where um, you would take schools to refugee camps to kind of see what's going on is that is that correct and do you think that could fit in as an alternative absolutely so you know and really taking, and that started from 10 years ago when I was taking random people, you know, not random, anyone from all walks of life to the refugee camp to see it. And then it became more structured, you know, after I left Cambridge in the White House and I started taking students and their parents and former Secretary of Education um, from the U.S., Arnie Duncan. He was the longest serving secretary of education in the U.S., took him to the Zaftari refugee camp. And, you know, for me, it's like being able to just it's like that refugee encounter, having people experience those moments in life just to share another perspective. And I think you're right that experiment, whatever some schools call it, experimental learning. Right. So that's one important part of service learning. hearing stories, being on the ground, learning the language, having those awkward (laughs) cultural exchanges. (laughs) I was wondering um, why specifically you chose to work with children Um, and kind of present the issue of refugees to them rather than adults. Yeah, couple reasons. The first one is my mentor, Carl Wilkins, the one that came and spoke in my high school, he was the one American that stayed in Rwanda during the 94 genocide. And he inspired me. And I thought, you know, what if I can be like a little bit like him? And I knew the impact that it made. Um, I also went on a speaking tour with him in the U.S. and Canada for a month when I was 18. And we sp- spoke at high schools and universities all across Canada, Canada and the U.S., Um, And it really motivated me to do that one day. And so that's what made me do, you know, so many school visits. Um, But also, you know, I don't like how the current world looks and I've, I want it to be different in the future. So, you know, schools are where the next leaders of all these different industries and politics will come out of. So it's never been about fundraising. It's never been about changing people's minds to think a certain way it's just open exposing them to a different a different train of thought and you know tapping into that that empathetic side of how we think about situations do you think there are differences in the way children respond to what you present to them versus how do you think adults would respond yes but sometimes no uh i think i mentioned to you last time like one time at a retirement center you know, I was talking about follow your hearts. I'm like, I wonder how this message is going to go, given that the the minimum age for this retirement center is 81 or something, if I remember correctly. And they were so so gung ho. They were making donations. They were um, they start they had a class where they started talking about some of the different ideas. 
they're very motivated to learn. And kids too, I mean, um, I've heard some of the most amazing things in, in school, I, you know, I'll never forget, I was at International School of Belgrade in Serbia and this fifth grader, probably about 10 years old, she was very, just trying to make sense of all of this. And after she heard my presentation, I was in her classroom. She raised her hand and she said, you know, I don't, I don't understand. You know, like we're 90, she went on this like little cute little rant. She's like, we're 99.99% similar. You know, why do we focus on the 0.1% that we are different? And it was just silent in that classroom. I'll never forget that moment. There's some amazing moments of empathy and compassion, but there's also some dangerous moments of hurt that I've seen too. You know, and I thought the biggest problem with refugees is what some of their actual needs, whether it be shelter, education, health, but I've realized as I've gone on these speaking tours and worked in schools and universities, part of the biggest problem is how we treat refugees. It's um, it's I was at a seventh in a seventh grade classroom and this this student made a reference. He said it's the terrorists, the Muslims, and we spoke about half for half an hour. I was fortunately in that classroom so I could share a little bit about Islam, some of my firsthand experiences, you know, living in in Islamic countries. And I'll never forget though. The next day, a kid came up to me from that class, and I still remember his name. And he said, you know, why did the guy say that? I'm Muslim. And it felt like part of him was destroyed. So, <laughs> yeah, we have to be very careful with our words. But I've, I've seen some amazing things and some also really destructive things, um, unintentionally, but very destructive as well. That's the thing about children, right? Like, they can be, um, it's kind of interesting how, okay, they're the most innocent. They come up with these, like, kind of like unspoiled, unabashed viewpoints about how like the other is the same as myself and everything. But also children can harm sentiments being more carefree with the way they conduct themselves and the way they go about things that children are quite likely to slip up and say something. Not that adults aren't. Adults make much graver errors. But I think that's an interesting time to kind of go and talk to people when they're at that age because yeah. they're kind of more free, right? Do you think that makes any impact? But go, you know, what I think about is that whoever, you know, when she said it's the terrorists, the Muslims, that thought came from maybe a parent, maybe something on social media. He did not come up with that. I, I, I try to remember that. I also, and I think that's a great age where we can break down when we're, when we were at, when we're 25 or later on in life, breaking down, if someone said that there's going to be a fight, there's going to be arguments, people, you know. Whereas when you're in middle school, you can kind of just calmly say, oh, no, you know, that, that's not how it is. No, I agree. I think speaking with children precisely because they're so like carefree and unabashed with their statements. And I feel like that's what we need more of these days. I feel like we need people to, I think we need people to speak what's on their mind, talking to what he said about Muslims and them being terrorists and how he didn't get that idea of like from his own mind like he heard that from his parents or from i don't know some from social media maybe hopefully not but i feel like once we when we have people who speak their mind even if what they're saying is like that's like bad things that they've absorbed from other people 
if we say those things out loud, then we can start having conversations about it. And then we can start having like productive kind of, we can start having productive change basically. Cause if you don't, if you just harbor all of your sentiments inside and all your opinions about the world are just like, they stay within you, then you never really change your worldview or your perspective because you, those perspectives never get challenged because they're never spoken about. They're never spoken aloud. I really agree. I remember David Seamus, he, he's now the, I think he's still the CEO of the Obama Foundation. And he came and spoke to us when we were interns in the White House after the election. And he said, we have a problem kind of on, he gave this long analogy, I'll make it really short, but he said, the wrong way to talk to people is saying, I know something you don't know, and you'll just never understand. But if, if you knew what I knew, you might think like me, and here's why. So our approach to, I like that, having dialogue, we're just shouting at each other these days. Um, and we need to get better at um, having conversations and not, not you know, I, I, as I grew up in rural California, you're going to hear, you know, in rural, rural versus urban areas, it's just so different, right? And so, of course, you're going to have some thinking that's a little bit um, Stone Age thinking. Um, but don't, if we criticize it right away, the worst way to get someone to change their mind, my grandpa says, is to put people down. <laughs> I'm trying to kind of zoom out and look at this entire, this idea of talking to people when they're younger, so sort of educating them in quote-unquote the right way, as what's coming out to me from this is, this is kind of a sort of anti-propaganda or a kind of positive propaganda, if you will, because the way I've studied like propaganda, at least in like history or IR, in cases in, for example, Rwanda or Serbia, where we did have, let's say, either genocide or we had sort of like conflict creation, a lot of this starts from, sort of similar to what you've spoken about, the creation of the other in people's minds right from when they're growing up and right from the, when they're children. What you're doing seems to sort of try to counteract this, where you're also working with people from when they're in a young age, but you're kind of propagating the exact opposite message to the fact that there is another essentially that everyone's the same that everyone has these kind of like could you elaborate on what the message is the ground message that you're trying to kind of feed in at that age and is that something that can be globally applicable or does it differ from region to region and if so how does it yeah well when carl came and spoke carl wilkins came spoke at my high school you know it was all about humanizing the other you know humanitarian perspective and um you know, t stepping into the shoes of the other. It, when I'm with, when I'm speaking to students, it's really about, and working and doing different workshops, it's about, you know, seeing that we really can make a difference, you know, as that caravan analogy I shared earlier, seeing the impact that we can make in people's lives and the importance of, you know, failure along the way. So I'm also teaching different types of skills, you know, um, the value of failure, if we, use it the right way and have grit, those non-cognitive skills, you know, persistence and grit. Um, and then at, at the end of the day, it's really, you know, I know this is a overused word sometimes, but empathy, it's, you know, how can we um, really feel what others are going through and have, a, you know, a, a, as one student, I think a teacher, it was at American school in Paris. I think it was a teacher. He talked about having a place in our hearts for others. Um, and I don't think it's, as you asked, I don't, I don't, I mean, I've been in some, you know, I've, I've spoken over 45 countries now, and I don't think there's been a country where 
they're exempt from every, every school I've been in, every country, they want to get to know people from other places. They want to help and figuring out what they can do. That's the scariest thing I would say. It's like, it's where to start. And even in, as a university student, like where to start if you want to go to Jordan, what kind of volunteer opportunities can you get? But I'm all about, you know, we need to be a little bit, we need to have a little flexibility, a little, a little bit of spontaneousness, um, especially in a, in an area like a refugee camp where it, so many decisions are being made so quickly. Yes, they might not email you back there, you know, especially when they have, when they had 8,000 refugees arriving a day, they didn't email me back. But when I got there on the ground, I was able to get into the refugee camp and I was able to um, help in different ways. So just because they don't write back to us or answer our calls doesn't mean sometimes we do have to just sometimes show up in a place, make connections. I'm a big believer in, you know, the power of relationships. I think that inter interpersonal aspect is especially important when you're working with refugees because they have a worldview that we just cannot even imagine like someone who is not a refugee you just like you just have no idea like you just don't know um and i think that's why people who have contact with refugees that's why they come out of those encounters feeling so like changed or they feel so motivated or inspired maybe it's because they've heard stories that they don't usually hear about and they they can't imagine going through but it's just jarring and i think that's and i think having the interpersonal connection is what takes those stories from like the extreme and the unimaginable to like mm -hmm. like this is something that actually really happened like it's not just on the fringes it's like an actual real life like this is my story and it also it like not normalizes it but it makes it less like less of a spectacle yeah and i was at melbourne college in hong kong the other month and after we did a live Zoom call with Syrian refugees inside the Zatari refugee camp, and we walked with, you know, the father, you know, showed the view from behind of his second grade daughter walking to class, walking to school in the morning. And I'll never forget in reflection the next day, one of the fifth graders said, you know, I used to think the refugees were, and he was like, I feel bad for even saying this. I said, no, please share what you want to say. Like I thought refugees were dirty. And then I realized what matters most is uh, their personality. So you're right, Bell. It's like these experiences and it's not, the stories can be literally, you know, maybe they can't go to a refugee camp right now, but with technology, we can make it feel like almost they're there. <laughs> it's not the same, but it, it's getting close. I can feel, I can feel some of those same emotions. Yes, you can't, feel the dust and the mud as you're walk, like, walking through a, a rainstorm and the smells. Yes, you can absorb all of it, but you can absorb quite a bit from a Zoom call in a, what I've noticed, because I've, I've been feeling it myself. Speaking of refugee camps, this is a little unrelated to the exchange that just went on, but this is something I'm curious about. When we do have an I just could be very ignorant about this issue or I just can't seem to put this together because when we talk about refugee camps and sort of a long-term vision for like the alleviation of the suffering that's felt there, 
um, like if we look at Zothery in uh, the camp that you work with, for instance, is there any kind of long-term aim there? Like, is is the eventual aim to make the refugee camp into a more habitable space in the sense that, like, at some point in the future, it starts to resemble a city? Or is it sort of more of a temporary thing where relocation of people back to either other places or their old homes is the Like, how do international organizations like the UN, for example, look at this? What's the long-term aim sort of with refugee camps? Or have they not thought about this at all? Well, I was, I was on this like Middle East, like 30 under 30 thing last year. And I had two minutes to speak. And my two minutes was about how I think we need to dismantle the whole idea of refugee camps. I don't think they help. I think putting in all, it's like, as refugees have sometimes described to me a prison and to a lot of the world's credit, refugee camps are the anomaly. And it would be wrong if I didn't mention, you know, over 90% of Syrian refugees here in Jordan live outside the two camps. Um, most refugees live in urban settings around the world. That's the majority. Okay. And so that's, that's, I think that's a positive. Um, but I think we've got a lot of work to do. I do think, so I work with a lot of refugees outside the camps, of course. And there's this whole fascination with refugee camps uh, from the West. And I try to counter that by like, so groups want to go to the refugee camp and, and there's been some, I, and I, I share this story, but I don't want people to think that this is like, this always happens. Um, but this is an example of what can happen. And there was a group of um, university students from North America and they went to the Zatri refugee camp. And my friend was part of that group. And they met with a bunch of little kids, like fourth graders and younger. And they were supposed to play with these kids. And as a activity, they were handed squirt guns and they were supposed to squirt each other with, <laughs> and I just, and, and one of the kids she told me just started breaking down and the trauma, the PTSD and everything. And we have to be so careful on, and she also said, as they're going through on this charter bus through the camp, she heard comments saying, oh, look, they're fine. They have satellite, t you know, they have satellites, refugees are doing great. And it's like, Oh, I, I, I think we can go to a refugee camp and totally miss the point too. We can work with refugees and totally miss the point. Um, and that's why I think it's really important to spend time with the people and be very careful about how we maneuver. I mean, how we help. And I think part of it is not helping right away. It's really forming relationships, not coming to any conclusions right away, but listening. But yeah, the refugee camp in Zathri does look like a city. And the plan, I mean, I, I, I think about the 19, some of the Palestinian refugee camps from 1967 here in Jordan, you know, 60 years, more than 60 years later, um, not almost 60 years later, and how it looks like a city. And I'm sure that's, un, I mean, I, I remember when I got to the Zathri camp, 75% women and children at one point. That was one of the statistics I learned, but I also saw it too. I, you know, you look at who suffers from conflict and war. I met a lot of widows in the refugee camp, a lot of torn apart families and going back. I have a Syrian friend I met with yesterday and her family's selling their, their land, selling their house back in Syria after 10 years of being here. We're going back is not a reality. 
for most Syrians. So yeah, this is a permanent home probably for many of the Syrians, just as the Palestinians, you know, over, I don't know the exact numbers, but you could say two to 3 million Palestinians here in Jordan. You've got 1.7 million Syrians. The number varies, but it's like, how do we make, and so part of it's how do we make people feel welcome? So how we treat people is really, I think what it comes down, how can we prepare, you know, Gaurav, I know you've been looking at the big picture. I love that. How can we make it so whatever we learn in IR, whatever we learn can help us when we get into the a place like Zatri refugee camp and meet refugees, we say and do the right things. I like what you said about how focusing or concentrating on how we treat refugees because helping refugees isn't just, it doesn't have to be just going to the camps and, you know, um, helping them there, providing them with resources or whatnot. It's also how you treat, you know, the people next door who probably might have gotten displaced from their home and are now having to establish themselves in an entirely new country where they don't know anyone, where they don't speak the language. So it's just like those mundane, everyday things, like how you show up for people in your everyday life and how you treat, um, you know, like migrant workers, immigrants, refugees that you know. It's like, just like, again, the interpersonal, like really just forming that connection, not jumping to conclusions right away. I like what you said about that as well. Like there's lots of ways to help. It doesn't just have to be on the groundwork, even though that's like really important and really key. Well, we're all on the ground. I love that, Belle. It's like, how do we show up in our own communities? And you're right. It's not just about refugees here. It's about, it's, it's bigger. It's about anyone that feels like they're, you know, any minority, any group that's having a tough time adjusting. Um, whether And I was on one LA radio show a few years ago and, you know, Los Angeles radio show. And they, he basically asked, why should we take in refugees? And then he's, and I said, well, we're, we're a country of refugees, you know, we're, you know, and I started giving some examples and he's like, well, we're a land of economic migrants. And here's the problem when we're starting to say like economic migrants are more entitled than refugees or immigrants, you know, that's where we have to be so careful and just be like anyone that has gone through tough times, you know, we, it's good to know the difference. And I know a lot of schools and I help them with different activities for, you know, what's the difference between a migrant refugee, but at the same time, let's forget the differences and know these pe people that are, it's a lot easier to stay in your country than it is to leave. That's one thing I really remember from refugees telling me that one 14 year old at the Budapest train station in Hungary at the, the height of the Syrian refugee crisis, which a lot of people say it was like 2015. This journalist asked him, European journalist said, where do you want to go in Europe? As if he was winning the lottery. And he said, Syria. And she said, no, Europe. Like she thought he didn't understand the question. And she started saying like, Germany, you know, give me an example. And he was like, I understand your question. <laughs> I want to go back home. And that changes our perspective, right? Refugees are not trying to take you know, things from other people. They're just trying to live. It sounds like a lot of the problems we're facing and that you're specifically dealing with is dealing right. with this merger or this clash of both languages, cultures, and also worldviews. I think at the base of it, from both sides, right? Like refugees coming into 
an environment that's different from their origin, but also the host nation that actually is is trying to assimilate these refugees within their own cultures. Like there's a there's kind of a a clash emerge on both directions. But I'm sure you would have seen also like as you've demonstrated with like these examples that you're throwing in, which both of us are really enjoying from like all over the world with like people that have said certain things that have stuck with you. Um, I was just going through like your website and I noticed you've really been all over the world, right? And just like very different places. So for example, like you gravitated from Denmark to Saudi Arabia or to the US to just like as different contexts as you could possibly imagine. And this is in the context of obviously your work in kind of educating people and trying to change their viewpoints. What I was wondering there was what your kind of strategy is going into these different places. So for example, if you were in Denmark the other day and you're going to Saudi Arabia the next, you're going to India, let's say day after, um, and these are very these are places with very different contexts with very different cultures. Oh. That would lead to each of these contexts, the school children you engage with in these different countries having slightly different viewpoints about the entire refugee issue. Is that the case? Are there generally very different viewpoints, or is it roughly at least at that age? Is it the same level of vulnerability and the same level of sort of perception to take in new ideas? Yeah. Good question. I think. There's a very similar demographic in all schools I speak at. There's a small minority that really like are your activists that will gravitate towards what you're talking about, want to take action. Then you've got like 70, 80 percent that they're, they're movable in a way in terms of like they're trying to understand. But you need to give them more simple ways that they can engage. Um, how can they engage with this issue after you leave? Um, they might not identify themselves as an activist. And then sometimes you do get, you know, 10%, 20% that are um, repulsed by a message or the, and they try to, for whatever reason, counter it. And I think, I mean, I, I love working with people. I, you know, I, I think it's important. I can sit down with anyone um, and just hear where they're coming from and, and try to, and Mrs. Obama always said, reach people where they are. So knowing, knowing what they're, mindsets may be does help me absolutely so you know if i'm in saudi arabia i know that they're going to have a common shared language i know that that's a gravitating factor right people are rooting for the world for morocco in the world you know in the world cup because they're another arab country here and in denmark i remember i'll never forget this actually i ran into a couple stories i can share but i guess i'll just share one and that's they're like oh we don't have refugees we don't have syrian refugees here and I was at the school for a week and I was like, I don't really believe you know, everywhere in the world, the Syrian community has been displaced. And sure enough, I found the next day I went to a restaurant. I just typed in Mediterranean restaurant. And sure enough, it was a Syrian man from Hama. And he, we were just talking one evening. And, and I think we don't even know sometimes who's in our own community. To me, it's about make, helping form those connections. I feel like sometimes I'm just trying to be a bridge between those you know, people that may never come into contact with each other if we don't try to form that bridge. And then helping them become friends. You know, I mean, I've started different campaigns and different um, letter writing between younger students, um, Zoom calls, and the similarities we find out you know, that we have are amazing. You're dealing with a status quo that's kind of not as sensitive as the approach that you're trying to take to this issue. What would you say is the greatest sort of barrier between bridging people of two different cultures 
to talk and engage with each other? Is it just the fact that they've had different backgrounds and don't see things the same way? Or is it that they're taught to not engage with the others they would with their own, quote-unquote, their own kind? What's the what's the challenge there? Say fear. When you've labeled, when you put someone in a box in your in your head and you've you've labeled them, and we all do it to make better sense of the world, but there's a lot of fear of, of the other. And that fear can be very strong, especially when you're you feel like it's us versus them. And that's what we're tackling. We're tackling something really huge. People are, don't want to be against refugees or against they're they're afraid they're afraid that they're gonna lose what they have they're afraid that they're gonna, gonna the status quo is gonna change and we've got to either show them you know break down these misconceptions because they often are misconceptions and stereotypes and and if the status quo is gonna change that we gotta show that you know that's huh. not a bad thing sometimes yeah. how it always is isn't how it always should be and we've got to show the potential. I think me sharing sometimes the potential that refugees have or having refugees be able to share that themselves. Um, you know, I think about, you know, all of our Apple devices. Steve Jobs, his father, was a political refugee from Syria. And I think about all the benefits. And if we would have feared Steve Jobs' fa biological father, would the wow. U.S. have had Apple and the iPhone and MacBooks and everything? We have to counter that fear in creative ways. And as Bell said earlier, it's about, you know, how do we show up for others? And that, to be honest, I was nervous. I was afraid for when I first went to the Zaftari refugee camp. I was excited as well. A lot of emotions, you know, but how do we show up for our neighbor and learn their story? I wonder how much of that, like, fear of essentially what we don't know like it is it is it is just fear of the other fear of what we're ignorant of when it's when you don't know that's when you start making all of these assumptions and you start like creating these pictures of what you think refugees are in your head you feel threatened by your own imagination so I, and i wonder how much of this um fear is perpetuated by like western ideals of individuality because like here in north america especially it's very like in, like the individual is the focus like we want to better ourselves we want to do things for ourselves we chase our own like you know careers and our own ambitions and we have our own self-expression but in, for example, East Asian countries, it's the collective that is emphasized and it's the group that is of highest importance. And I know in a lot of indigenous cultures as well, it's like sharing is emphasized and your community is the focus and making connections and forming connections with other people is actually more highly valued than anything you can do for yourself. So I really wonder like how much of like anti-refugee sentiment is just centered around our culture at large. Okay, so if that's the case, if it's because of individual, do you think it's like, I think about the Paris attacks, the bombings, I don't know, they happened, you know, it was five, six, seven years ago. And the first news story that broke was that it was like, I think Syrians or refugees, um, although... It turned out that that wasn't, I think, I'm trying to remember, I don't think that was the case. Um, but the first story often is the one that sticks. And I'm wondering how much of it do you think is, um, are individuals that are like reporting the news? And I know you mentioned earlier that news is not just coming from traditional outlets, but collectively from social media and from each other. So are, the, are people consciously like trying to protect that? Or do you think it's more of like, 
because is it subconscious i think it's honestly it's to say it's subconscious would also in a way just like excuse like the views that they hold if they hold those views at all but like let me understand so like your question is like do you think the people who make up who make up those stories they're doing it subconsciously or because they consciously hold those views let's look at the birther movement the the people for example that didn't believe that president obama was rightfully born in the u.s like there was Mm -hmm. there was there was like the birth certificate was authentic it was shown that he was born in the u.s you know what what is driving people to be to be fearful of you know where is that is it coming is it intentional is it we just don't want these people to rise up and and be equals is it a feeling of exclusivity i think it's people fear like what they perceive to be a threat against them so it's like to them refugees they come to quote unquote they steal our our jobs or they're bad for our economy or all of these other remarks it's like when you start encroaching on my personal well-being that's when i start having a problem i think the fear is driven by one like a dissemination of popular narratives that are very discriminatory towards refugees and then it's like once those narratives and those sentiments stick they become really really easy to evoke in like your arguments against refugees um and then two i think the fear is driven by like perceived threats to i don't know individual well-being um and i think that arises from this culture of individuality that we have at large but i also feel like the fear is driven by privilege because i feel like people who like discriminate against refugees they're most likely they're people who have never had to gone through anything like that like and like anything at all so that creates a lack of empathy and when there's no empathy then you can't possibly show up for people it's like and you can't possibly want to help them or like help them establish their lives here or help them live better feel better do better and social media definitely does not help either i love that bell it's such a good point martin luther king has a interesting speech on that topic and he says it's he calls it the drum major instinct, this desire, this, we all have it. He said this desire to be first, this desire to be recognized and praised. We want to be part of, you know, even if it's not true, we love getting our name in print. And, you know, he was saying that in the sixties and I think he's really right. We're a world driven by, we want to keep the act. We we don't want anything that threatens our attention given to us. I was going to ask, since we all are, an IR podcast at the end of the day. I tend to do this towards the end of every episode. I wanted to look at this from like the perspective of foreign policy, because obviously the silver bullet solution is stop waging war, stop waging conflict. You wouldn't have refugee crises. Let's say if the question I'm asking you is not hypothetically, if you were the prime minister of Syria, I knew what you would do in that case. But let's say it's a little more complicated than that. And you were, let's say, the prime minister of one of the neighboring countries. What sort of a foreign policy would be ideal for you to take up or for you if you could control or dictate sort of the the principles that neighboring host nations operate but also like global sphere overall operates what what kind of ideals would you take up at that broad policy level because we've spoken a lot about the individual level and also obviously the individual level is what translates into foreign policy but how does that look at sort of through a systemic lens and how would you do that through again principles of IR and stuff 
Yeah. In terms of whether I would open my border to refugees, I mean, I look at Jordan as a great example. I kind of call it like the land of refugees. Over half a million Iraqi refugees, millions of Palestinian and Syrian refugees. And there's a really good uh, video about the king of Jordan talking about, you know, at one point we had hit, they had hit saturation point, saturation point. They can't take in any more refugees. But then it does come back, he said, to the human level. This is what the king of Jordan said a few years ago. He said, there's a woman, pregnant woman, you know, a woman with a baby in her arms, and she's being shot at as she's crossing the border. What do you, what do you want our military to do? You want our military to shoot at her? Of course not. <laughs> there's only one option, you know, and that's to take the person in. And it's just the common sense reaction. And I think neighboring countries of Jordan have had such a huge responsibility um and they've done a lot and but unfortunately now the borders are closed i mean all the country neighboring countries have taken in as many refugees as they can i would say we've got to do better collectively if i was a neighboring country i would put pressure on the syrian government and you do that with you know as i learned through model un you do that through you know allies and groups a group of countries putting pressure on a country has a lot more impact than just one country. So we've got to put our, we've got to put humanity, bef- and I, this might sound cliche, we've got to put it before making a profit because sometimes it's not profitable to decrease the, you know, you look at with Russia, this path, we, there's so much more that we could do to maybe prevent some of Russia's military moves by, by putting harder, you know, pressure and more sanctions. We haven't really given that a try, but then really, I would meet with the people first before putting sanctions and stuff. I would meet with the president of Syria. I would really try to, but if that doesn't work, I I really believe in opening your border as much as you can and try to make that awful decision of bombarding your civilian population. You hope that they see that. And if they can't see that, then you, I don't know what you can do by yourself. I don't think you can do much, but with a collective group of countries, I think you can do a lot more. And it's just so simple. Just be more human and stuff, right? That's the message that we're trying to get out. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was 24, 20, 24 years old in the White House, met with one of President Obama's advisors on Syria, and I was talking to him on the phone as Aleppo was being destroyed in fall, in winter of 2016. You could, I could feel in his voice as I'm sharing some of the stories that I'm hearing from doctors and because I had, you know, some people on the ground there. And yes, it's one thing to get all the intelligence reports, but it's a different thing to hear about what happened to Jamil and his family. And I remember sitting next to him, talking to him about Syria. And you never know, you know, we don't know what our impacts can be on people if we don't try. Maybe that's my idealistic, you know, you have to be a little naive to change the world, but sometimes it really does work. I just feel like throughout history and just like taking a look at like this society around us, this group of idealistic, naive people who, again, as you said, have the potential to change the world, they form a pretty small minority. And since this is a very small minority up against, so it's sort of like you against the world, right? At that point, we are trying to make changes and trying to just do as much good as you possibly can. But then there's an opportunity cost there because there are many different avenues that you could take. Like you could take the conventional policymaking politics route where you just get into kind of you dedicate your life to kind of rising up the ranks and then you say okay once I'm up there once I'm in a position of power I'll enact all of these proposals that I have um I'm kind of now thinking against this construct of on the grounds after that exchange where you said that everyone's sort of on the ground but then you could in the conventional sense of the word 
work on the ground is similar to what you're kind of doing where you work in refugee camps go around the world just educating people there are many different avenues that you can take and it feels like every avenue that you do choose every path that you do choose is an opportunity cost for the other because while you're spending time talking to school children that's time spent away from potentially rising up the ranks politically or vice versa or just like working in academics etc etc so how do you choose the right path because i think everybody just wants to make as good of an impact as they can right but it's not always possible to do everything it isn't just one individual there's more than just one person who's working towards this end but it seems like it's a pretty small group at this point in time so how do you make sure you choose the right path out of all the paths available to you and how do you make the most out of that yeah it's a great question and i really believe it's about and i don't just say this i really believe it's about following your heart and by that i mean in I mean, do what's most true, what feels most true to you. And it's not like I looked at a map and was like, oh, let's go to Syria. Oh, let's go to South Sudan. They both really pulled on my heart. And that's what helped me have the mental fortitude when challenges arose to persevere, I think. And there was this one quote that I share in a lot of my school talks. Uh, my friend sent it to me because he said it was really, he thought my story. And the quote says something like, you know, and every day the world is drag you by the hand and say, this is important. You should worry about this and this and this and this. And at the end of the day, it's up to you to yank your hand back and put it on your heart and say like, no, like this is what's important to me. I, I combine that quote with what my boss in the White House said, um, you know, follow your passion, not prestige. Some things you may do may not look so glamorous on a CV, and that's okay, You're as long as it feels fulfilling for you. How do you remain optimistic when all of these forces of oppression are acting against you? How do you kind of maintain your sanity when you see these contrasts between the different avenues that you work in how do you go to a refugee camp work with refugees come back and see people living a perfectly normal life how does one maintain one's sanity by seeing people stretching themselves beyond possibly like their means and then people just living as if everything is perfectly normal how how does one get through that intact what keeps you going the relationships with the people that i've that i've met you know i Worked with one family, one refugee family here for three years on different projects, helped them in different ways financially with my nonprofit. And then finally, like they sent me a selfie and they're in the airport heading. They got refuge, they got asylum as refugees in the US and now they're in Michigan. And it's being able to see lives be changed in such positive ways, seeing refugees get new starts, the inspiring stories, being yeah. able to work with like you podcasts know. like yours and different things that I really believe in. And, and that conversations that, you know, if I had to be anywhere in the world right now, I'd, I'd, I mean this, I'd be here on this podcast with you guys, because I think these conversations are so important. And I feel like this time in my life, like we're at a junction in this world. There's a lot of different forces at play. And as my professor from Cambridge said, if you don't shape the world, you'll be shaped by it. And so this is a way that we can play an active role, do what Brittany Brown says, and be in that arena just to show up. Mm-hmm.